towards God. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. Probably goes without saying, but let me just say on the the front end of this, uh, by no means, as I talk about this subject this morning, is this one I myself have mastered. Um, I, too, come humbly this morning, and uh, it has been a good topic as we close this series on the seven deadly sins um, to review what God has to say about the sin of greed. Now, before we get there, I just want to ask you not to take you back to any uh, very bad memories, but can you think of a time in your life where you've maybe made a poor financial decision? Where on the front end, you thought that it was a good decision that you were making, but as you got away from that or you experienced what came about it, you realized that was a terrible, terrible decision financially. Uh, I, I can't help but think, uh, some of you may know this story, but Claire and I, when I was in seminary, we had been saving up. Um, she was supporting me full time, so she had been saving up. Uh, as I was in school, and she loves to travel, and she really wanted to have me have this experience with her in Europe. So we saved up. It was in a good break after taking a full year of classes, and as we mapped out this multiple week-long trip across lots of different countries, it was very expensive. And one area we thought that would be a good financial decision would be to save on airfare. Uh, And that came by way of finding this airline that was a European airline that nobody we knew had ever heard of, Uh, And as we researched, it was maybe fairly new, but it was very cheap. And for us, we were like, we don't care about luxury on this flight over here. We were in Boston, so it was a little closer flight. Let's just get over there. All will be good. All was not good. Uh, And that started actually immediately as we landed when we went to the baggage claim, uh, and Claire's bag was not there, which, again, me as a guy, I'm like, oh, why couldn't it have been my bag? We could have kind of navigated this a little bit easier, but for Claire... Not only her personal things and uh, all this stuff, but our rail passes and just a lot of terrible mistakes as travelers. Um, and the first night that we got in on a Sunday, I have a picture up here. We had uh, this day planned where we were going to go ride around on bikes. We started in Paris, and it was awesome. Beautiful evening, great afternoon on bikes, exploring the city that for me was, was new. Claire had been once, but it was just perfect weather, a great time. Um, and let me explain this one. So we bike through the day, wake up the next morning. We cannot track down her bag. We hear nothing. So the next day, Claire has been traveling all day in the clothes she wore, and then we biked in the clothes she wore, and so she's a little dirty looking for new clothes, and this is us at the Louvre the very next morning. This is our next plan, and if you could see on the right, I, Claire gave me permission to give her this, this picture, but those are my boxers she's wearing as shorts to the Louvre. Um, and... Yeah, it was just one of those moments like, here we are. And and I'm like, man, this is awesome. Uh, And again, this this is the first leg of the trip. I can explain to you more of the details of the rest of the way that went. But we never got our bags. Uh, She never got her bags. And it was a little bit of just an unfortunate experience throughout the trip. Lots of H&M visits. Uh, But we kept all the receipts, right, thinking, okay, we've got some uh, opportunity for the airlines to pay us back. We know there's a system in place. Well, as we get home, we go through that process, and not long after when we're home kind of tracking down the airline and working through this, we call. There is no receiver on the other line of this call. This airline no longer exists. (laughs) And we learned a very valuable lesson uh, that... There are some things maybe it's good not to go the cheapest route or the cheapest option. 
Um, and it is an experience. It's one we laugh about now at the time. It was a little bit unfortunate. Um, but I, I jokingly asked you that question about a financial decision that you've made. As you look back on it, you say, that was not a good decision. Some of you have tracked with, uh, there was a big, um, uh, a woman in the news who started a company called Theranos in 2013, like right out of college, this incredible company that just blew up, that would take blood samples and kind of test them quickly and supposedly accurately and had all the science behind it. And just in a matter of like months to years, they raised, I think, over $700 million and got over to like a multi-billion dollar evaluation really quickly. And what, if you followed and tracked with that story, you realize is that the claims behind this company and, and the things that were propped up were not real. It was all false. They didn't have the science behind them. But so many investors, wise people, made this investment into a company and lost millions and millions of dollars. And you see, in this story this, this morning, if you just heard, and we'll look at it, but Jesus says that in this story, the rich parable of the rich fool, that by the end of the story, this man lives in such a way with his possessions where God says, you are a fool. That you have wasted your resources and that this is something that is really, really serious. And so as we track this morning, what I, what I really want to do is I want to look at greed and I want to look at why it's so prevalent, what it does to us, and then how might we be able to step out in freedom from it. Um, I want to look at those three things this morning in this text, if you will track with me. And so first, why greed runs rampant. Um, he says in this passage, if you saw it, he said, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, which means a greedy desire for more. Some of you might say, okay, well, define greed for me then. But greed and excessive love or desire for money or any possession that money can buy. And he says, you know, I think the first reason it's just so prevalent around us, I mean, just think about the culture that we live in. We are a consumer and materialistic society. You can't get away from any moment, the radio, the TV, even once Instagram used to be just for friends and pictures, but there's ads on there now too. Literally everything we listen to, see with our eyes, hear with, we are always being told that there is something better, there is something more that will complete, you know, more happiness in your life, it will improve your life, that there is something you didn't even know existed five minutes ago, but now you need it if you are going to be able to live life and live it to the fullest, that it is just all around us, this message of consumerism and materials to fulfill and satisfy. These are the waters we swim in. But more than it just being what we are surrounded by, there's something really uniquely powerful about money and possessions. And Jesus speaks on it. It's why actually outside of the kingdom of God, Jesus speaks about money more than anything else. And it's because in money and in possessions, there is something that we are trying to seek from that, that again is uniquely powerful, that money is this thing that we believe if we can get enough, that we can secure for ourselves the comfort that we long for, the happiness that we long for, the peace that we are searching for in our life, that life will be made whole and complete, not necessarily because of this paper or a number in your savings, but what it can provide for you. And it's why in this passage, if you saw it, Jesus says, take care and be on your guard. That is offensive language. 
that there is this position that you're supposed to take that is offensive when it comes to greed and taking care of your heart and being wooed by all of these claims. And I, I just wonder, you know, this is one of these topics, greed in general, that I think we can often identify the greed maybe we see around us or in other people, but we're not ever quick to identify it in our own hearts. I know one pastor who says, I have been in pastoral ministry for so many years. I have had people come in my office and share and confess almost every sin. I have never had somebody come in my office and say, I think I have a problem of sin, and it's destroying my heart, my soul, my family. And yet Jesus speaks so strongly about it. And again, this idea of taking guard, I think Tim Keller will say, you know, in adultery, you don't necessarily need to be on the watch because you know when you've committed the act of adultery. It's pretty obvious when you're in that act uh, what's going on. But there's something about greed that begins to kind of get a grip and, you know, slowly takes hold and grips our hearts in ways that it's just harder to take notice of at times. And again, to this point, many of us are not on the offensive when it comes to this. And, and we've said this all throughout the series, and I hope you hear this this morning, that uh, the, the whole of Scripture actually has good things to say about resources and money as well. It's not this some game where it's just a negative thing. And really through all of us, if you've been tracking with us in this series, that all of these sins are rooted in proper desires that God has made us for. Again, if you think about often the things we try to clamor for through money, it is good things like comfort and security and acceptance finding, you know, your spot in a certain social status for approval. Like, all of the things ultimately that money is tied to are things that God has made us for. They're good desires. The Christian message is not these are bad desires and you just need to desire less. It's actually that you have desired wrongly and you need to desire more and more properly. This is the path. This is the way of Jesus Christ for us, that these desires are good things, but when misplaced, they are incredibly dangerous. Um, I, I think a little bit about this taking guard or taking watch. Uh, it's my first time being a homeowner and having a backyard and having some grass to mow, and, you know, the winter comes and things begin to get dormant and the yard looks good. I didn't know you have to maybe do some pre-emergent when it comes to weeds and fertilizers because as soon as the weather got good, it's like all these weeds just, like, popped up in my backyard. And what once was a, like an awesome, beautiful yard, now it just kind of looks like a mess. And there's this sense, again, that, that with greed, that a lot of times we, we don't necessarily see these things pop up, but they are growing, they are taking root. And we need to do something about that. Uh, and, and again, I, I think what's uniquely challenging about money is that I think if I was to ask you one-on-one, -on -one, and I've had this conversation with many do you actually think that if you got what it is that you're longing for through wealth and through possessions, the accumulation of more, do you actually think that it would make you whole and happy? And I think that all of us can just experimentally think and see it in the news. We've seen it in people's life that money does not connect to happiness. I, I read something actually this week in the, H, uh, the Harvard, I almost said uh, HV, Harvard Business Review, and it says that uh, actually, wealthier people in this one poll done by a professor at UC Berkeley were actually a lot, lot uh, less happy than those who were in lower income brackets. Not only that, the wealthy actually give a less percentage of their income than those in lower income brackets. That money doesn't correspond the way that we think it would. 
Um, some of you have heard this, I'm sure, before, but how many examples of people who have gotten everything they longed for and yet it didn't fulfill like the way they thought it would? I've always been moved by the, the one early on in Tom Brady's career who's wildly still playing football uh, into his mid-40s. But uh, after he achieved a few of his first Super Bowls, I, I'll never forget the interview he did. I think it was on 60 Minutes where he said, man, I, I thought that this would fill me in a much fuller way, and it, and it hasn't. And by no means am I connecting that to why he's still playing today. I think there's a lot of reasons. But there is this sense of when you achieve it and when you get it, we, we see it played out all the time. It does not uh, provide what we think that it might. And uh, uh, the last thing, before we just look at what greed does to us, I think the, the other thing that's really uniquely challenging to our day and age is that money and possessions for most of history, uh, you know, they were commodity. It was a tool. That identities and people's, you know, who they were and what they saw themselves are were wrapped up in their communities and in their family structures, you know? And money was that commodity for them to maybe have security, similar things for us, but it wasn't an identity piece for them. And what the unique challenge I think for our day and age is that through possessions, we're actually finding and trying to find our identity in those possession of things, right? That we want our possessions to say something about who we are. If we have certain things, if we use certain brands, if we live in a certain neighborhood and our kids go to certain schools, that says something about who you are. And we, we, we use possessions and use money in a really unique way just in history. And it's incredibly dangerous. And it's why Jesus says, be on your guard. So I ask you before we move into what it does to us is who this morning feels like this is something that they have guarded well. I'd be quick to say, I don't think I have myself. And I think as we think about this topic, again, not one I've heard confessed often, even in Christian community. Jesus says, watch out. Uh, And again, we see it in the Testament of Scripture. Paul warns against it so much that many people have walked away from the faith because of their possessions and their wealth and the accumulation of it. And what's even scarier is that some have walked away verbally, but often many make a slow walk away in their heart. And they grow cold towards the things of God and cold towards people. And though they might profess with their mouth, their heart is really attached to something else, and it's not God himself. So what does greed do to us? I think just seeing how, how it's around us, it's the water we swim in, it's prevalent, we're not even aware. But what does it actually do to us? And I think we see it in this text a little bit this morning. If you look at verses 17 through 19, uh, if you have your Bible this morning, just listen to these words. Uh, It says that the rich man's land was very productive. And he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and store all my grain and my goods there. Do Do you hear that first person possession language. The the first thing that greed does to us is it distorts our view of goods. The the text is very clear. The writer of Luke is really clear that the land produced plentifully. And that's not to say that this man didn't work hard and set up systems for the land to produce plentifully, but it's very specific in saying the land produced. And then all we see from there on is me, my, and I. 
that greed begins to distort our view of goods and where they come from. Uh, One uh, commentator said it this way, given the full sweep of Christian tradition, one would have to conclude that the most profane word we can utter is that word, mine. I couldn't help but just think about Knox right away when I heard that. Because he is in the mind stage. Not, he's, he's not like this greedy little kid. Don't hear me when I say that. But it's really interesting as he started to, to use that mind language so much. And, you know, it's even more fascinating as his little brother Cruz is getting a little bit older and he's able to grab at things and hold on to things. He doesn't know what he's grabbing for, but Knox does. And that is Knox's. <laughs> and it, it's funny, as a parent, you step back and you're like, first off, you didn't do anything to get that. We got that for you. It's not yours. And uh, just seeing them kind of have this tug of war over things that are not really theirs is wild to see how quickly that starts in the life of humans. And so we go through this struggle. You know, I'm thinking about it like, do we use that language a lot? Or, or what is it that just kind of comes naturally to us? And I can't help but think about that illustration and take a step back further as you think about God, the maker of everyone and everything. And there's so many people that are clamoring over things that are not theirs, but they are fully in that possession language of me, mine, and I'm. I'm not a word, but I. Um, and, and so the first thing greed does is that it distorts our source of goods. You know, that, that God is the maker of everything that... They are not ours, and many of us need a conversion first and foremost in our understanding of ownership. But this is kind of where some of this can start to, to unroot in our hearts as we understand where and what things come from and that they are not ours. Martin Luther, uh, in, in the commentary on this, he says, there's three conversions a Christian has to go through. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of their purse. And that, la- that often that last one is the hardest conversion to go through. But it's not that it just distorts the source of goods. It also distorts the role of goods. And again, you see this in the text. If you look at verse 15, Jesus warns. He says, be on guard. Why? Because life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Your life doesn't consist in it. But exactly the opposite is what greed says, that your life does consist in it, and the abundance and the more of it is what is going to make your life more full. And again, I I touch on this, but Lawrence Shames wrote a book called The Hunger for More, and he says a certain line gets crossed. People look to their goods not just for pleasure but for meaning. They want their stuff to tell them who they are. And so as I said earlier, we buy luxury pins or watches because we want those accessories to describe who we are to the world and we want everything from our cars to our vacation to define us. That greed greed distorts our view of goods. It's no longer a a tool to be used and to use well and wisely, but it actually becomes uh, this source that we use to buy comfort and buy security. And God says it's it's a foolish trade-off. There's much more going on deep down in your heart. And, and I think this is where it really grieves God the most. It doesn't just distort our view of goods, where it comes from, and what their purpose is, but it actually distorts our views of one another. 
And again, you see this throughout the Old Testament. God sends prophet after prophet, and often he warns them, and he rebukes them, and he disciplines them because of the way that they, as they got wealthier, the way they treated other people, the way they used their goods in ways that were dehumanizing. And again, this is, this is I think, something that grieves the heart of God. And many of us are not aware of the ways in which this is a reality for us. That when possessions are the goal, people become pawns. And we see the way that greed rips at our society and how we value people and how we look at people, right? That in business, if the bottom line is profit, what ends up happening in that is that people become pawns for that. That how efficient and how effective somebody is in helping to get that bottom line, that is their value. Now, that's not to say in the business world and in different spheres of life that, you know, we have value to bring to something. It doesn't mean you just, you hire and you, you know, walk through a bunch of uh, things that are clearly just not a fit from a job standpoint. You want to hire somebody that can walk into that role and use their gifts and obviously do things really well. But that's not what I'm talking about, and I think you know that. This is more of the commodifying of people. And what happens across history, again, is that uh, the most vulnerable, the ones who are taken advantage in this way, that those who don't have as much to offer, whether because they're children or at, at different times in the culture and in the history, it's been women, that it's been the disabled, it's been the elderly, that these are kind of the people that get pushed to the sides of the center of society because they can't really offer as much. It's a, it's, it's a dangerous thing because we take the image of God from people and instead stamp the image of money and efficiency and effectiveness when it comes to profit. And what it does is it distorts our view of one another. And in that, and again, I, I didn't even touch some of the big ones, but we see it. Uh, the sex industry, human slavery, which is wild to think that that is just as rampant and it's in our backyard. It's not a somewhere else issue. It is in the city of Dallas and beyond issue that there is human slavery still taking place. Inhumane working conditions or unjust pay to create things at a lower cost. Uh, the ripping of our ecosystem for temporary financial gain. There's so many realities of how this distorts and plays itself out. But I do want to land on this as we kind of turn more to what, what can we do? What are some more steps we can take? But ultimately, all of this distorts ourselves. Because I, I don't know if you know this, but God, from the beginning of time, has existed in a fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a perfect union. It was a self-giving and self-loving union between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God created, not out of a need, God created because that love and that self-giving is so at the heart of who he is, the triune God, he wanted to share it. That he wanted other people to experience that. And it overflowed into creation. What that means is that we are created to be givers. That we are created in our heart of hearts as a reflection of God to be people that give of self, that give of resources, that find our actual purpose and satisfaction in life as we become more generous. And see, what greed does is it distorts us in a really, really bad and painful way. 
contrary to the design of God. And what's crazy is I thought about this, but many of us actually live into that design, that, that generosity with our possessions and things, when, when a natural disaster hits. I thought about it just locally for us, you know, as we moved in uh, last February, not this one, but the one before when uh, the storm hit and the freeze happened. Uh, it's in moments like that that we actually become more human because our stuff is stuff. And what matters is having a place for people to come. What matters is giving things to help those around you. Uh, again, just bigger natural disasters, you see it happen all the time. In the city that I grew up in, uh, Harvey, that's all you saw. What you saw on the news, I mean, how refreshing not to see the storm, but the way that people pressed into the way God has made them, to be generous, to be givers, to love people, to, to serve others. Like, when you watch that, there's part of you that you're like, it is so good for the soul. It's because it's how you were made. And unfortunately, what happens is as we get away from those events and those circumstances, we kind of get back into our normal ruts and rhythms of me, my, and I, and greed takes deeper root in our lives. And finally, what's really scary here, and I will close after this, is that you see it in the text, but greed ultimately and possessions and finding our security in that gives us all a very, very false sense of security, you know? that many of us are laboring right now to get somewhere that we don't necessarily have that promise of security. It says it here in this text that God says, you're a fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And that's how it is for the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That that night, his life was going to be weighed in the balance and his possessions will not tip any part of that scale. And the same is true for us, that our possessions and what we've acquired and the things that we've been gripped by will not tip that scale one iota. It's a dangerous false security for us to be building and waiting our life on. You were made for much greater and much better. I was made. And, and what's interesting, too, is, is we think about uh, this whole series that I read this when it comes to greed, but as we've you know, worked through all the seven deadly sins, uh, one person on this topic says, greed turns love into lust, leisure into sloth, hunger into gluttony, honor into pride, righteous indignation into anger, and admiration into envy. If it weren't for greed, we'd suffer fewer of the vices. And you see the way that that more, that possessiveness plays itself out in all of these things. And so let me, let me just land here this morning. What, what can we do um, Charlie has referenced a book by Rebecca DeYoung on these topics. It's a great one to read um, when you want to get down on yourself. Just kidding. Um, but it is really, really helpful. It's really instructive. And I'm going to close on why this whole series is a beautiful thing for us, even though at time maybe it's felt like you've been hit over the head on some things. But the first is that she offers, she says, we, we've got to know our weakness in this area. And one thing she says is we've got to review our spending. This might be a scary thing for some of us, but she says, imagine that others had access to all your financial records and spending habits, your investments, your savings, your checkbook, your registers, credit card bills, tax returns, receipts, cash flow, but they knew nothing about you. So they had all that access knew nothing about you. What sort of judgments could they make about your character, about your loves, your values, your excesses and your deficiencies, your ideals and identities? You see, greed starts in the mind and the heart, but it doesn't stay there. 
it plays itself out in our spending. And again, this was a thought experiment for me this week that uh, was a tough one. As Claire and I begin to have discussions on this, what would somebody say about us? I think that's a good place to start, reviewing the reality, not what we say or think, but actually taking this charge to be on guard. Another thing she says is you can take examination. Calculate how many hours a week you spend thinking about buying or acquiring things by going to the mall or browsing the internet or speaking in your house and then somehow Amazon tells you that that's what you need and here it is. Uh, and, and, and again, I think some of these helpful tools are beginning to uh, assess our emotions because we are holistic beings. That This is tied into how we feel. So are your current feelings of frustration and depression temporary, temporarily alleviated by buying something for yourself? Does earning more money or acquiring more things create a renewed sense of power over your life? What do you dream about and what makes you intensely angry or despairing when you can't have it? In other words, we recognize our excessive attachments in both our dreams and our broken dreams. Uh, And and the big one here is not a surprise. The the biggest way to begin to step into and claiming territory and ground and to have this grip taken off of your heart of greed is by giving. That giving produces generosity. Uh, The point of the practice goes beyond just supplying needs for those who are in need, but it actually extends to reshape our desires. That It has that power over us. We talk about it all the time, but it's not so much in just the act of giving. It's actually believe that that reorders your heart. It reorders your reality to what is really true of life. Your possession is not where you build your life, but more so in walking and in step with how God has made us. So, uh, you know, I, I think this is a really important one. I, I found this to be helpful. Um, you know, often people will ask, you know, what's the percentage? They kind of want to just know, like, what's to give. <laughs> and uh, I was reading something where, again, this pastor was saying, I, I always, they ask first, like, is 10% the requirement? You see that in the Old Testament. And this pastor said, no, 10% is not the requirement. And you can see them kind of take, like, this deep breath of, like, okay, good. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, in the Old Testament, they, they only had part of the revelation. That we've actually stepped into more fully of who God is and more fully of his character and revelation. Jesus did not tithe his blood, but he gave it all. He ties that into more. And, and so, again, this, this is a one to work out in, in a household and obviously as a church family. But giving is a big one, and it is an interesting thing to be thinking about as Uh, we review this. And then finally here, ultimately, Jesus is not interested in just mere outward change. He wants to change us from the inside. That if some of you know the the parable of the rich young man, right? Jesus, they have this interaction, and he basically is asking, what do I have to give to be saved? And Jesus says, give it all away. Jesus has this really unique ability to pinpoint what is our idol, the thing we worship the most. It's not that the call of the Christian is to sell everything and to be poor, although that might be the call for some, but it's that what has your heart the most, that's what Jesus wants you to give away. And the disciples hear this when he says that, because the rich young man walks away, he says, I can't do that. The disciples basically say to him, like, God, if it's harder for the rich people to enter into heaven Uh, I'm botching this big time, but you know the saying that it's harder for rich people to enter the heaven than a camel through the eye of the needle. The disciples hear that and say, well, then who can be saved? 
It's impossible. Jesus says, what is impossible for man is possible with God. That is what conversion is. He takes greedy people. He takes people who are scared to give it up. He takes people who can't do it. And he will rework it. That is what sanctification is. He will rework us as we come to him and as we slowly let go of things. That God is a gracious God. He is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, that God is good. He does want to replace things so that we can live more fully into what it means to be human and what it means to be generous like he is. Let's pray this morning as we come to the table. The ultimate sign of God's lavish generosity. Father, we thank you for what the bread and the blood represent here, the the, the juice and the bread, God, it represents that you, Father, are generous. That you have come to make a way for, for sinners. You have come to find a way for those who are so affected by all these deadly sins we've talked about, God. And what you ask for us is to come to the table empty-handed. That What might it look like for us to open our hands in some ways, to identify some areas, God, where we say, I know that my heart actually has been worshiping and living and idolizing this thing. But God, could you help me? And Father, you are quick to help. That as we come this morning to the table to think on the work and person of Jesus Christ, that he did not come in part, he came in whole. And though he was rich and had it all, he laid it all down to make us rich. He is the way and the path towards generosity and towards life and to full desires. Father, would you help us as a community live into that? We thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. And before 